Hello, friends, and welcome to Madison BookBeat, your listener-sponsored community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your host, Andrew Thomas. And while we'll touch on this later today in our program, I'd like to mention that today is the last day of our summer pledge drive. Amy and Catherine are sitting by to take your pledge at 608-256-2001, extension 1, or online at wortfm.org. And in the studio with me, I have my former producer, Rochelle, to talk about uh, what we were able to do last hour. Yes, we wanted to give a thank you to Brian Bridgeford for calling at the end of the hour. Thank you so much, Brian, for donating to A Public Affair and to WORT. Brian's favorite shows are Any Jazz, A Public Affair, and Democracy Now. So thanks so much to Brian. And yeah, let's let's hear those calls and keep them coming this hour for BookBeat. Great. Thanks, Rochelle. So back to BookBeat for back back to BookBeat for today. Uh, our guest today is John West for a conversation on his new genre-bending memoir, Lessons and Carols: A Meditation on Recovery, published this past May by William B. Eerdmans Publishing Company. John is a technologist and writer, currently reporting the news with Code at the Wall Street Journal, where his work has won multiple awards and been a finalist for a Pulitzer Prize. Previously, he worked at the MIT Media Lab and the Digital Publication Courts. He holds an MFA in writing from the Bennington Writing Seminars and degrees in philosophy and music performance from Oberlin College. He lives in Boston with his partner, their daughter, and a cat. Lessons and Carols takes its shape from the Christian liturgical practice of the same name, often celebrated on Christmas Eve. This service consists of nine short lessons that sketch the fall of humanity, the coming Messiah, the need for redemption, and hope found in the birth of Christ. Between each lesson, congregants sing Christmas carols that provide musical counterpoint to the lessons just received. As John West's new memoir is divided and John West's new memoir is divided accordingly. Nine lessons structure a fragmentary narrative that reads equally as short meditations, prose poems, collections of quotations, and memoir on addiction and recovery, mental health, becoming a parent, the desire for redemption, the urgent need for poetry and music and ritual, and the elusiveness of language. The carols that divide the lessons are West's translation of the Latin poet Catullus's elegy. Driven by a desire for order and meaning, West's narrative nevertheless lingers with doubt, depression, and loneliness. Finding meaning in the rituals we co-create in the company of others, lessons and carols suggest that, quote, maybe redemption is not a place you find, but a system of map making. Sketch a land, pencil in dragons. Imagine it real, resplendent, and broken under a waxing moon. John West, welcome to Madison Bookbeat. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, it's it's great. It's great having you, um, and I'm really excited to talk to you today about this about this beautiful work that um, that you just published. So one of the first things that I notice about Lesson and Carols is. Uh, what I would call the experimental narrative structure, and maybe we can maybe we can question whether or not it's experimental or not. But to me, it, it read as such. So I'd love to hear you elaborate on what lessons and carols mean to you and the religious tradition that you're most f- familiar with, and why you found this to be a useful model for organizing your memoir. Yeah, I mean, so I grew up in a Congregationalist church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, Plymouth Congregational Church. Um, and we did, I think, five lessons and carols uh, on Christmas, not the full nine. Uh, and I, I grew up uh, as the assistant to the organist choir master. So I would turn pages for him and, you know, get him water and that kind of stuff at the church. And um, when I was a very little kid, you know, 12, 13, something like that. Uh, and we we put these lessons and carols on and they were, they were super lovely. I mean, the history of them, I think is really interesting, which is that uh, E.W. Benson, who goes on to become the Archbishop of Canterbury in I think the 1880s, um, decides that he he's worried that people are going to go out drinking on, uh, on Christmas Eve because the cathedral is under construction or renovation. I'm not quite sure. So they don't have a, a good home for it. So he's worried people are going to go out drinking. So he says, well, we'll do some carols and that will kind of, you know, Maybe this is an apocryphal story, but this is what I've has been related to me. You know, he's worried people are going to go out drinking, so he decides to put on these carols and lessons, and it's going to be so much fun. And I guess it worked, and and it was a great time. Uh, and then in World War One, they adapted and 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 redid the carols um, at King's College in Cambridge uh, with new new music for organ and choir. They did a whole thing, and 
Um, I think that there's something really lovely about the Lessons and Carols as a tradition um, in 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 the idea that that we're reading these verses from the Bible that it's almost democratized and that every in the original, at least, every office of the church, and all the way down to the laity, to the congregation, would read from one of the one of the lessons. And I think the final one, everyone did together in unison. And so there's this kind of nice um, openness to it. Um, in college, I put on a, a a version of the lessons and carols of my own. I like adapted it into a play, and it was kind of you know funny and arch, but also earnest i think at some level and you know we all we all uh, did it and i've been doing it ever ever since this is play version um i think the reason that i wanted the book to do it actually i think the title came first in some ways like i was writing about this experience of doing lessons and carols every year and i thought well maybe the title should be lessons and carols because it's kind of funny and that like there are lessons and maybe there are carols in this book um but also it means something else and i always like titles that that work on multiple levels and then i thought well why don't i structure around those lessons and carols and, and try to like contain these episodes because i think one thing that's hard for readers with fragmentary work is being presented with this kind of undifferentiated mass of fragments and being asked to just read through it without break or pause or structure and so i wanted to give that reader some structure and some guidance on on, on kind of what was coming where and um, another nice thing about it is that it repeats the carols the carols repeat each time and a lot of the stuff in my book is about cyclical the cyclical nature of recovery from addiction to mental illness and, and so i wanted to kind of grapple with that idea of, of stuff being not a linear progression maybe but a cyclical progression yeah, the 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 reading experience of it as well. Um, I'm I'm often dislocated in time. You know, uh, different different characters come into the narrative. It's not clear if you're in college, uh, if you're out of college, if if you're an adult with a career, if you're back in if you're back in church. And so the I I found the the order of the lessons and carols kind of provided these momentary waypoints for the reader to kind of stop and kind of recollect themselves and and rethink about. Uh, how you're structuring the narrative and and one of one of the things that i found um quite compelling were your translations of of catullus this this uh first century bce latin poet and they they structure they they, they form a large structure to the narrative and each is its own lesson on the translation process as well. I feel like a lot of your work is also thinking about the work that you were doing as a writer, trying to communicate a variety of experiences, trying to translate from various languages. And so I just wanted to have you reflect a little bit on the type of translation that you were doing with these Catullus uh, passages from his elegy, because what I notice in just about all of them is they are also bringing you back to this idea of, of the importance of ritual in everyday life. And it sounds like the, the, the repetitive process that you were mentioning as well. So just kind of musing on Catullus, the translation process, how did that help you think about ritual in your both mundane life and even spiritual life? Yeah. I mean, I, I think ritual is key to, it's it's so powerful and so potent. Um, it's almost like a technology that we have developed over centuries, millennia, I don't know how long, how long ever humans have been around, we've been developing this technology of ritual. And what it lets us do is is add meaning um, and, and accumulate meaning and, and kind of store meaning from year to year, from session to session, from ritual, to, from instance of ritual to instance of ritual. And I think the the act of of writing so i, I wrote um a translation of this catullus elegy 101 that's this poem 101 and well we number 101 i guess but um i wrote a, a translation whenever someone um that i knew died or or kind of disappeared as a result of their addiction and that process um was originally kind of almost like a cathartic therapeutic i don't know pick your word process for me personally in my personal life um, but it became um, kind of a structure to the book uh, as well, because I, I think like this this idea that we we engage in this creative practice, we engage in poetry as a way to um, to understand and make sense of of things that happen to us. I think is is a really important and and powerful way that we can do that. And I think so much of you know the lessons and carols is another great example, right? Like so much of the the rituals that we've accumulated over time are these things that that can unlock new new under new ways of kind of getting at getting behind or getting beyond the the kind of first blush of of how this like what happened and into a, a more 
kind of almost ineffable way of understanding what what's going on in the world around us. Yeah, in 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 addition to your engagement with with the poet Catullus, you also engage with a lot of other poets, primarily through quotation. And uh, something that I found particularly interesting about Lessons and Carols is the extensive amount of quotation that is used throughout. And um, it, it ranges from writers. I, I made a, I jot down just a partial quick list, but we have John Ashbery, Ann Carson, Maggie Nelson, Ludwig Wittgenstein, Soren Kierkegaard, uh, John Calvin, Louise Erdrich, Madeline LaIngle. Um, all of these voices are, are kind of uh, participating in the narrative. You kind of blend them with your own in really seamless ways. As someone who also personally loves collecting quotations, I have a journal of just quotations that, that I've collected over the years. Um, I'm interested to hear you talk more about, um, on the one hand, kind of translating, and then on the other hand, directly quoting, and what, what that process is like as a, as a, as a writer and thinker. I guess, I guess I, I'm like not sold on the idea of originality uh, as a virtue um, or originality as a um, fruitful way of thinking about the creative work, creative practice. I think like so much of what we do is, is, is kind of a form of translation, um, translating this idea from this poem that I read into something that, that speaks to me more fully, uh, translating this concept that, that, I, that is in the ether into something tangible and legible for someone else. And I think that like, I wanted this kind of chorus of other voices that I had been engaging with because so much of what, of how I came to understand my own experiences in the world were through reading and engaging with other people's work. And I wanted to reflect that, that kind of, we are all social creatures and embedded in these networks of, of other voices that help us think and think through and shape uh, who we are. And, you know, and then the other thing is like, I, I made this spreadsheet, you know, at some point during the process of like this is how you know in each fragment is a, is a row in the spreadsheet and i put like okay well i referenced rita dove the poet rita dove in this one and then like four fragments later i referenced Rita Dove again and i made sure that i came back to each voice um so each one each each not necessarily each quotation but each person appears at least twice in the book and i was very careful to like try to make that make sure that each time they reappear they're saying something Either the context around that quotation has shifted, or or like or like the quotation has taken on new meaning over the course of the thing. Because I wanted to replicate the way that, just as in ritual, we kind of accumulate new meaning over time, even as we keep kind of tethered to the past. I wanted to make sure that these 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 quotations were serving in the same way. Kind of like the translation, the translated idea that I was taking was evolving further and further, even as it kind of maintained its through line. And that was at least the hope of what I was trying to do with those quotations. As, as you write so eloquently about in this instance, it's, it's the word that has become flesh, right? And it starts to, it starts to build and, 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 and change. Um, you are listening to Madison Bookbeat and I am in conversation with author John West on his new memoir, Lessons and Carols, a meditation on recovery. And speaking of a variety of different voices, different perspectives, uh, that brings us back to the fact that we are hosting our, that we are in the last day of our summer pledge drive here at WORT. And my, uh, my producer, Jade, wants to give us an update on how things are going right now. How's it going, Jade? Um, well, I think it's going really good. I heard Catherine on the phone with someone. So I know a donation is being, I'm sure it's going to march in here any minute now. Um, march right through the door. March right through the door. Um, yeah, we are on, it's the very last day of the summer pledge drive, but it is the first and only um, time that our listeners can donate to a public, or, uh, sorry, a wrong show, Madison Bookbeat. Um, they're, they're all great. They're it's, all, hard, it's hard to yeah, single one yeah, out. Yeah, right? you know. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's the first time you're able to give to Madison Bookbeat. This is a very um, unique show. It's only been going for the past couple of years now, um, but it, it gives us the opportunity to, opportunity to talk to authors who are, um, you know, writing books that either are, you know, coming from Wisconsin or touch on stuff that, are, that is happening in Wisconsin, something that we can all relate to. Um, and I also think that we get a full hour um, with these authors. And that's not, you know, something that other radio stations do. I've, uh, we, you know, do a lot of book shows with our, obviously Madison Bookbeat and also Public Affair. Um, and 
we always hear from authors that, oh my gosh, you actually read the book and you're going to talk to me for an hour? You're not just, you know, going off the blurb that's on Goodreads or whatever. I'll say if you give me a free book, I'll read it and interview anybody. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so authors out there who want somebody to read their book, send it, send it our way. But no, Madison Book Beat, it's such a great resource for uh, giving authors time to really expand uh, t- talk about their work in, in in expansive ways. It doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be the short sound bites. And we'll be hearing more from John soon. But Jade, it looks like looks like we got some good news. Yeah, that pledge marched its way in. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Jane. Jane's favorite shows are anything covering Indigenous people, LGBTQ plus shows, world music, and uh, Jane says keep up the good work. Um, and would love more Indigenous Peoples programs, um, please. Which, you know, I, I agree with Jane, and, and we are working on it, and um, especially at Madison Bookbeat, you know, we have the ability to talk to folks who, um, you know, maybe are otherwise not getting the full hour of, of radio um, and bringing them on. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, if you want to be like Jane, you can give us a call, 608-256-2001, extension 1. We have Catherine and Amy out there. You can also go online to wortfm.org. It's super uh, easy and painless to make a donation over there. If you're um, set up with uh, PayPal, it you know takes two minutes to make a donation. 608-256-2001 or extension 1, or you can go online to wortfm. And you got anything else, or do you think we should go back to John? Let's go back to John, and, and then we can pick up with some of the um, really cool uh, summer uh, donation um, thank you gifts yeah, that, we, that, that, we, that, that we have for folks. We have um, we need five donors during this hour, so if we can get at least uh, three of you to call in before our next break, I think that would be <laughs> that would put us in a good spot, so we don't have to rush through the the end of the interview. Yeah, thanks, Jade. We'll, we will we will check back in with you shortly. So uh, back to back to our conversation today with John West on his new memoir, Lessons and Carols, a meditation on recovery. So, John, we were thinking a little bit about the, the chorus of voices that you're engaging with um, through 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 literature, uh, the classics, um, the biblical, uh, the, the, the Bible itself. Um, and uh, the, the, the meta, uh, excuse me, the, the subtitle of your work is is a meditation on recovery. And I, I was really kind of thinking about this word meditation as I was as I was reading through this, and and you've you've already mentioned it in, in one of your comments, but throughout the work you're you're also thinking a lot about fragments in in writing, uh, writing fragmentary types of. Um, narratives. And uh, at one point you, you talk about Wittgenstein writing in fragments and many of the lessons themselves um, are, are quite fragmentary or, or, or episodic. And so I, as I was sitting thinking about this, I was wondering, it's a, is, is, is there some kind of connection that you're, that you're making between this idea of meditation as a genre and the fragmentary in, in your writing? Just what, what did those kind of open, open up for you? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I really do think that um, the kind of traditional narrative structure and, and kind of long, long prose is not particularly meditative, um, yeah. at least at least not for me. And I, I think that like the idea of, of kind of being untethered in time and space and and that rather than than thinking about this like clear linear path through a life, but rather meditating on the life in, in kind of a it's like I, I envision it like a big pool of water, right? And like you're, you know, you're in this pool, and as opposed to being in a stream that's flowing, um, you know, a stream might flow from one place to another, but like a, a pool of water that's kind of still and stagnant, that's much more meditative to me. And so I think that like this, this idea of kind of like everything being, all the fragments are just kind of existing, coexisting next to each other and bouncing off each other in hopefully interesting ways. Um, that that was what I was was trying to get at, and 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 trying really to. I don't know. There's kind of the tyranny of the narrative. Like I, I didn't want that. Um, I didn't want that. I, I really did want readers to to see the way that that things move in cycles, that things move in um, unexpected patterns. The way that like you understand your past so differently. You know, the way I understood my own life has changed every year, whether or not you know, like not even counting the new things that have happened. I just mean that like we we learn and we grow and and we see ourselves in in new and different ways. And I think that like 
having some humility, I guess, about mm -hmm. our own life. I think that's that's one of the hallmarks of a, of a meditative state is like you were kind of right sized. You're thinking about things, you know, not grandiose, not, you know, you're, 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 you're able to see things for what they are. Um, and that that's what I hope what I hope the book is, is doing. Yeah, it, 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 the, the, the other thing that, that, that I was noticing that you are frequently meditating on in, in, in the book is the is the elusiveness and slipperiness of language and and how how language um, it can kind of pin down meaning by kind of reducing something to to a single word or or, or, or set of concepts. And yet the fragmentary nature, it's, it's very recursive. It's this kind of returning to it's, it's making additional attempts at narrating or narrating the past or understanding your experiences from, from a variety of, of perspectives. And, um, again, you were quoting Wittgenstein who thinks a lot about the elusiveness of language, language as, as, as a type of game. And is, is there something, is there something to that, the fragment, does, does that seem, uh, given your stance on language, does the fragment seem potentially more, more realistic? You know, we're, we're describing, we're describing your work as kind of e experimental as, as nonlinear, but in some ways it seems, it seems much more representative of actually how someone thinks about the past, thinks about change. And so, yeah, just, just to hear you reflect on that a little bit more. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I think, I think, um, I think so you work in audio, right? And, yeah. and in audio, you can have silence, uh, although you never really truly get like true silence. There's always like the kind of faint crackles and things like that. I, I, I go to Quaker meeting now and I, um, and most of Quaker meeting is silent. And then every once in a while someone stands up and says something profound and then they sit back down again. And there's this silence that, that's in the room that's it's rich and real. And I think that like in writing and prose and in, 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 or any kind of writing poetry too, you know, you end up not, you can't really write silence and you have to leave white space. I think that that, that white space, um, it functions like a, hopefully functions like a rich silence where you're able to carry with it, you know, carry into that silence, the, the, the thinking that you're doing, the thinking that that you're that you've done and as you as you the reader reflect on what has written there so i think fragments like i don't know if they're realer but they're definitely like more um they carry within the richness of silence in a way that that um that 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 you know a full page doesn't and i i should say like for the readers out there for people who might read the book like it's you know each 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 fragment is on a page. And so there might be yeah. like a half a page of just white space, which I'm sure the publisher loved uh, to put <laughs> the book that way. But, um, but, you know, but, but it's, it's, it's nice, I think as a reader to have that kind of space to really like meditate in, to luxuriate in, I hope. Um, I think I always love reading works where there's a lot of white space because it, it, it feels like, like I'm being called into a silence in the, in the same way that, that, that you can have in all these other, important context. Yeah. The, the, the role of silence, that's, that, that's a fascinating one. Um, and, and it's, it's something that I, I typically think about in, in relationship to music and not, not always so much, uh, in, in, in the written word and music plays such an important role for you, both in your personal life. You, you are, you are a trained, trained musician. Um, and it appears through, throughout this work. And so, before we jump into talking about um, kind of the role of music in helping you structure this, I'd love to hear you read um, from one particular, this is the first passage that uh, you and I had flagged on page 44. And if you could just read that for us and then we, uh, we, we can um, discuss afterwards. But this is John West reading from a selection from Lessons and Carols. Bach is trying to reconcile a paradox. Today you will be with me in paradise, the tenor sings. And the alto joins, etching a popular hymn above the tenor, a kind of Baroque-era sample. As God has promised me, death has become my sleep. The two tunes, the two images of life, are fused in his creation. I played the first recorder for Actus Tragicus, that Bach cantata, at an early music festival. Dressed in our least rumpled performance clothes, my friends and I shuffle into a beautiful church with a small circle of abstract stained glass above the altar and rosy wood floors and pews. We begin to play. It happens in the exact middle of the piece, a perfect aria, 
a synthesis of life and death, the two presented one on top of the other like two transparencies on a projector. The tenor begins a fugue, then the alto takes it transposed up, the bass follows transposed down. All flesh waxeth old as a garment, for the covenant from the beginning is, thou shalt die the death. Our soprano enters, Ya come Herr Jesu, she implores, yes come Lord Jesus. She sings alone, begging for his presence, and then the fugue begins again. This time, as they sing about the covenant we've made, about our inevitable deaths, Soprano's voice floats above, calling Jesus down. When the sound dies away, in the rich emptiness, I glimpse something out there. Grace and terror and Carson. Nothing vast enters the lives of mortals without ruin. It's such a beautiful passage. It's 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 one of it's one of my favorite um, in the in the in, in the whole work because it's it's this kind of joining of of language with uh, the experience of 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 music and you know it, the, this passage really highlights a number of things, namely obviously your 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 love for music, but also your your engagement with with paradox, with with belief and unbelief as kind of a daily as a daily reality for you, and then this idea of being redeemed or or being fallen. You, you never quite use that word, but um, it seems like an, an, an apt um, uh, term for, for redemption. Um, I, I'm, I'm just wondering if, if you can begin by talking to us first about music and, and then we'll kind of, we'll kind of dive, we'll dive into these other, other things, but how does, how did the music figure in the shaping of the narrative? How does your training as, as a musician influence the work that you do as a creative writer uh, more generally, not, not, not just in this work, but, but, but more generally as well. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I love music. I love thinking about music. And I remember in music theory class, we would listen to a piece of music and we would like deconstruct how it was made. And, you know, you have these themes and these materials and, you know, the thematic material of, of the, of the piece, and you might have a couple of different kinds. And I, I borrowed a lot of that thinking or that way of thinking about a piece of music and, and tried to transpose it into this book. So I have these materials that I'm working with and they, they, you know, they, they, they reoccur over the course of the book and then they, they, they might merge together at parts. And just, just like you have in a piece of music where you might have a theme that's developed and then another theme is developed and then the two themes kind of get like laid on top of each other. Um, and that's what I was trying to think about a lot when I was writing the book. So there's, there's that piece of it. I think also like music is, um, so much of the book is about how do we get behind a paradox? How do we get to the other side of a paradox? And I think music is like this incredibly potent um, tool for seeing seeing our experiences in the world differently. Um, I I remember I remember I once put on like like I I accidentally was playing a kind of a, a dumb TV show while um, while I had um, a, a Bach cantata playing on Spotify at the same time and I was trying to turn it off and then I paused for a second. I was like, this whole TV show has completely changed, like 100% changed by the addition of this music in kind of a silly, goofy way. But like, but you know, there were, you know, it was, it was a very, you know, it was a, I think it was like Ted Lasso or something, but you know, it was, it was just kind of a random TV show with like Bach all of a sudden behind it. And you know, the contrast was funny, but, but how many times as a teenager did I sit with a, with the radio playing music and just, feeling my feelings with this radio and with this song and like feeling different about the world as a result of it, you know, and Wittgenstein has this great quote, which I did put in the book. I'm going to read it right now. It's the propositions, which one comes back to again and again, as if bewitched these, I should like to expunge from philosophical language. And he's, he's getting at this idea that we always ask, we, not always, we often ask the wrong questions of things. And I think a lot of this book was, was trying to say, okay, so we're, you know, I'm obsessed with belief or unbelief, but maybe the the solution to my obsession isn't to pick one or the other, but to get around that paradox, to ask a different question, to try to see it in a different way, see the change everything around the problem instead of changing the problem itself. You know, I think music is one of these things that lets you do that uh, for your own life, for how you feel about things, for how you understand things. Um, yeah, I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah, that's what I, that's what I was going for. Oh. I Absolutely. Like music, music is kind of a, as a, as a, I don't know if I want to say like a third path, but like a way past this, this kind of persistent dichotomy of, of belief, unbelief. Um, yeah, I think there, there, there's something about music that seems to, um, 
often express the inexpressible, you know, because it's, it's often, it's often doing it, you know, with, 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 without language. And, um, I'm, I'm also curious to know, uh, what is it particularly about Bach? Because Bach, it figures, figures pretty prominently, prominently throughout this. Um, and, and I'm, I'm just curious, is it, what, what, what is it about Bach or, or this era of music that really seems to kind of captivate you both as a, as a performer and a writer? Well, it's, it's first. I mean, the easy answer is the one I studied. I, yeah. I played the recorder and a little bit of the harpsichord, and I studied historical performance. So roughly, music written before the death of Bach, which is actually how a lot of times people categorize the Baroque era. They say it starts in like the 1600s ish, 1600 ish, and ends when Bach died, and you know around 1750 ish. And they actually like do it that way, which I find very funny um, because there's, of course, it's kind of a funny. Like Bach was not the end all be all of broke music, blah blah blah, et cetera, et cetera. But it is funny that we we picked that date. Um, you know, the broke music is is striking to me because it sits outside of, and this is the the other the more real reason. Uh, baroque music sits kind of outside of the mainstream classical tradition. So we we have this kind of illusion now, um, or maybe not now, but in the, the last hundred years, there's been this illusion that the way we play Beethoven kind of should be the same way that we play Bach. And that's actually not true. I mean, what they were doing in the Baroque era had a very different kind of idiom to how it was performed. Just in the same way that you don't play the guitar the same way for playing a punk show that you would if you're playing, you know, like a, I don't know, a jazz show. Like it's, it's different, it's like a different genre. And I think that all too often classical, kind of mainstream classical musicians used to at least, I think this is changing now, but they used to play Bach and Beethoven the same way, thinking, well, it's all the same. It's all classical music. It's all the same performance practice. It's not. And what was exciting about the Baroque time is it was much more experimental, I guess is the word I would say. Like Bach put on a concert of music that was 20 years old and called it ancient music. Like I'm presenting ancient music, which I thought was very funny. And, you know, and Bach was always constantly writing new, new music. And, and the way people engage with music felt, I think for that's composers was much more like, um, let's try this thing out. Uh, and it was less like, I I am a great genius with my romantic ideals of how music should be played and and that's you know it's the it's like creative act it's no it's like you're a craftsman you're trying things out was I think more the vibe uh, in the Baroque and that really resonates with me I think again like the idea of of originality being kind of a, a, a fiction or non not not like this end all be all of the creative art I mean I think. I don't want to caricature the kind of romantic era, but I do think that the in the romantic era, a lot of times you have this idea of like the great genius who has produced the work and everyone loves the the great genius in the work. And I think in the Baroque, it was much more about like, here are the influences I'm working with here. Yeah, it, it, mm -hmm. it was just a little bit more loose in that way. A little less ego, a, li a little bit more. A little uh, yeah, a little less ego, maybe a little bit more uh, organic uh, composition process or uh, yeah. communal. Yeah. Um, I'm speaking with John West about his new memoir, Lessons and Carols, a meditation on recovery. And as many of you may know, we are in the last week of our summer pledge drive. And, you know, maybe you tune in to WORT on Sunday mornings when I do and listen to Musica Antiqua to hear music from the medieval Renaissance and Baroque period. And you know exactly what John is talking about. Jay, do you listen to Musica uh, Antiqua on Sunday mornings? Um, I do. And I also, it, it's such a, it's such like a interesting way. M Music Antiqua really sets you into like um, the mood that comes right after, right? Because then we go to feminist news and then we go to a totally different type of music show with uh, her infinite variety. Um, but I, it's almost like a meditative state, right? To just like sort of tune in, listen to these um, gorgeous long songs um, it's really beautiful, and that's part of what our listeners, our our listener donors, are helping provide is um, just a such a mix of programming that we have at WORT. Um, and I have actually I have horrible news, Andrew. We have <laughs> no new donors during this hour, um, which means I need three of you who are listening right now to call like right this minute like as I'm as I'm seeing the phone number type it into your phone 608-256-2001 and then hit extension one um, we need at least four more of you during the hour to donate um, but I hope three of you made the made the call right now 
Um, you can also go online to wortfm.org and donate. Um, you said it was the last week. It's actually the last day. Last day. Yeah, this is this is your last chance. Um, it's also your first chance to donate for Madison Bookbeat. You know, Madison Bookbeat's I think one of the newest, if not the newest, talk show on um, a public affair. Or sorry, <laughs> it's really on my brain, huh? Public affair um, on WORT. It's a you know, every Monday we talk to a new author um, or someone in the book world, usually an author um, or a poet or or someone, someone, a bookstore owner, a bookstore owner. Bookstore yep. owners, mm-hmm. yeah. um, and we just get to spend an hour talking about books. I think that I, I have to imagine that a lot of you have listened to the show and and got a book recommendation, you know, a book that you didn't know had just recently been published or a book that you didn't know was set in your hometown. Um, you know, you, you find those books here and it's a valuable resource. You're also, um, Andrew, you're like a, a part of a, a really small collective, right? A mighty but small collective of hosts who are willing to spend their time to to read the book and come up with thoughtful conversations and reach out to authors, reach out to publicists, um, and bring this conversation to the the listener. Now, your labor, you're a volunteer, is technically free, but the all the stuff that goes in behind it to donate um, or to, to have the show happen is is not free. Yeah. And, and the thing too is like, I couldn't imagine doing anything else with my time. This is something that I, I find so meaningful and that so many of the volunteers here at WRT do find meaningful is that, um, this, this is what we want to be doing. We, we want to be a part of this. We want to be a part of locally supported, uh, community radio, talking to authors, playing fascinating music, playing compelling, uh, socially and politically relevant, um, news stories, uh, we get all this at WORT, and it really is uh, such a gem in Madison for those reasons. So. Yeah, absolutely. And we we can't do it without the support of our listeners. Um, I think that the number that's going around is that $96 puts on an hour of, of radio. So maybe you have, you know, $90 laying around and you can basically, you know, put the bill for this show right now. Um, think of it as you're paying it forward to your community. 608-256-2001, extension 1, or go online to wortfm.org. We need um, four more of you to do that during the hour. And let's go back to your conversation with John West. Thanks, Jade. John, something that that is is a is a recurring kind of concern and thought throughout Lessons and Carols is is this idea of 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 redemption and wanting wanting to be redeemed, the desire to be redeemed, even if you don't always, uh, even even in moments of doubt. And so it's it's a very important idea throughout your your narrative, and it's often discussed in relation to your experiences of addiction and recovery, um, mental illness, and also becoming a new parent. Um, these are these are things we haven't really touched on yet about the book, but these are uh, just as important as all the other elements that that, that we've been discussing so far. So could you just elaborate on why redemption is such an important concept in Lessons and Carols, per- particularly in relationship to these other life events that you that you narrate as well? Yeah. You know, redemption is, um, is such a rich term because it can mean so many things. You know, I, I, I think there's like a, a kind of a Christian understanding of redemption. Uh, there's a more colloquial understanding of what it means to be kind of redeemed. You know, am, am I redeemed for making that bad dinner? I don't know if anyone would actually say that, but <laughs> you can imagine, you know, like, you know, it kind of might mean something more like forgiven or, um, or, you know, you redeemed yourself for that. You know, like there's a kind of colloquial sense. I think that like um, oftentimes in lessons and carols, what I'm doing is uh, borrowing, <laughs> uh, kind of aligning those differences and trying to get us to think about what does it mean to, to be different, to change, um, and I think that that's really the, the the crux of 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 my obsession with redemption is really it's, it's an obsession with how do we as people understand what we what happens to us when we change? What does it mean to change? Are we is it capable of changing? Are we capable of changing? Um, and those questions are. Um, are I think paradoxes in the kind of Wittgensteinian sense where the, you know we, we want we want to I want to get beyond them and yet I can't seem to stop asking <laughs> stop asking them um, you know there's the the line about 
how once every seven years, every cell that was once us is, is replaced. And like, what does that mean? And, you know, Bach, to go back to Bach, he used to write different versions of the same piece, which is very annoying for musicologists now, because they, they all want there to be like one version, one piece. And actually, for Bach, it was like, what musicians did I have on hand at church today? That's what we're going to play, you know? And and I think that like, that, that like desire to create order out of the kind of malleable plastic you know of of like what actually is a self right selves change all the time but like we we want to understand ourselves as fixed and so that that like that's really at the heart of this question of redemption for me is like can i can i can i think myself or can i push myself to think about um about what what it means to be a person a little bit different a little bit differently um and i, I think also like i should note that like what it means to be redeemed is oftentimes culturally kind of contingent and and there are all sorts of value-laden questions that go into like who gets to be called redeemed and who gets to always be that person who messed up and those those questions i think are are urgent and oftentimes real sites of injustice and so i think it's really important that we kind of start thinking differently about what does it mean to have made a mistake in the past and and what does it mean to to come to a as society, not just as an individual, but can we think about these questions differently? And although the book, the book doesn't kind of more obliquely touches on that, but I do think that's a really important thing that I do gesture at in the book is this idea that like it's not just a personal question of like how do I feel like I have changed or haven't changed or what does that mean? There's also I think an important question that we as a community of people should be asking: what does it mean to change? Um, I don't know. Yeah, that's, I, I went off on a little tangent there, but yeah, that's uh, that's it. And 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 per, and perhaps that 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 brings us back to the idea of 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 ritual of return of repetition because at one point you write rep, re- redemption is not a given moment but an ongoing practice and so you know that that opening that beautiful very kind of poetic opening quote that 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 I read you know um, you know that maybe redemption is not a place you find but a system of map making I was interested in that idea because it's 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 a kind of creative it's it's a creative process you sketch a land you pencil in dragons imagine it real resplendent and broken under a waxing moon and so there, there there seems to be a lot of potential creative energy that that accompanies that accompanies redemption and that's something that can also be experienced communally is that is that is that fair to say yeah Yeah. i think it's absolutely fair to say i i think that like like what ritual offers us is a moment of of, to be in community i mean ritual i suppose there are rituals that you don't do in community although the ones i tend to be concerned with in the book are more embedded rituals um Mm -hmm. and i think that like what what lessons and carols what the christmas story can mean not what it necessarily means all the time to everybody but what it can mean is like this is a moment to fulfill promises to, to reflect on the promises that were made in this in this story the story has certain promises you know the wolf shall dwell with the lamb the lamb sh- the lion shall lie down with the kid the young ox and the duckling will the predator whatever the predator is for that one they all feed together right so there's this promise that like things are going to be different and yet we've been doing Christmas for a long time and, you know, things aren't all that different. It seems, I mean, there aren't in many ways, but, you know, we're still dealing with, with a lot of the kind of fundamental injustices of the world. I think people, I think it's fair to say. And so, you know, that suffering, that human condition that we're all still dealing with, um, I think that, that what ritual offers us and affords us what the lessons and carols offer and afford us is a, is a moment to reflect on that and to say, how can I in, in community in, as a part of a, a group of people bigger than just me like how can i how can i grapple and face that both in myself and in the world around me yeah one one of the ways that uh you're that that you express it in in the memoir is is an embracing of the of, of the christian faith to to the point of starting to identify as a christian so i wonder uh, we, we do have a little bit of time left if you wouldn't read that final passage you and i discussed on page on page 135 for us Sure. Yeah. And and um, just to kind of preface it, you know, uh, w- what I'd like to, you know, you can read it and then maybe just follow up on it. But is, I'd I'd love to hear you just talk about what what you find useful about faith, particularly the 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 and, and maybe useful is the 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 wrong word there. But what do you find compelling? What do you find generative about about the Christian faith, um, in twenty twenty three? Sure. Yeah. yeah. I have started to call myself a Christian, and my friends don't understand why. 
I don't talk often of faith, the vexing fact of its existence, a splinter too small to see. In my circles, faith is something to be skeptical of, if not something to be frowned upon. And I get it. I do. I agree. But still, my faith, like a weed, refuses to stay uprooted. It grows of its own accord. All it takes is disturbed soil and neglect, then green shoots push their way up. Kneeling on the sun-warmed wood because T once suggested that I might pray every day, I worried about policies ripping communities apart, about interminable wars, about climate change, injustice. If God won't fix that, if that's on us, what use is faith? Yeah, I mean, that passage, I think, you know, it reflects a moment in time, which I think is like yeah. one thing, like, the book is all written in the present tense, and it's all these fragments, and you don't know where you are in time, but it does reflect a certain moment in time, and I don't know, I don't know if I totally now feel that way about faith, but, well, well putting that aside for the moment, I mean, I think that, like, this question of like what use is faith um, is I think exactly the way that I want to get away from seeing it as, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, and like, and yet it's this thing that I'm obsessed with. Like, why, why do I keep coming back to this Christian tradition? Why do I keep wanting that? Even though I don't want it, even though, you know, there's all this like kind of grappling with that. And I think that in some ways the point is to grapple um, in some ways, the point is to come up against a paradox and, and struggle with it. And I think that I got, I get the luxury of, of having this, this faith tradition. I was raised in it. Um, it's the one that, that I'm familiar with the idioms of and, and like, yeah, I could go out and I could pick a thing. I could, you know, I could pick another religion to try, I guess, but like, this is the one that was kind of given to me. And, and I, I think that there are flaws and problems with everything that we're handed down not everything but most things were handed down come with something wrong with them and and it's up to us to figure out how we're going to deal with that and we, one way is rejecting i totally understand people who want to reject things i think another way is to is to try to work to understand how i can relate to it in other ways and that's what i've been trying to do uh, is is understand the parts of this this faith tradition that feel at home to me and the parts that i can that maybe are weird wild and, and strange but that i still want to to try to work with could I also ask like, how, how have, how have, cause you, you mentioned it several times in the book and then you mentioned it uh, once today, what has been the experience of attending Quaker meetings? Like how is that, how has that kind of inflected the way that you think about uh, the Christian tradition that you grew up with? Yeah. I mean, I love Quaker meeting. Um, the one thing I miss about it is there's no music normally um, or at all. <laughs> Not normally. There's no music. Um, although sometimes people after will sing or, you know, there's kind of, you know, I I love quicker meetings. I love I love the way it feels to sit in a, in a room full of other people and not talk. Our daughter, um, who is now three, uh, we went to quicker meeting with her recently on, on Easter, and uh, and it was wild. We we brought her in for the last ten minutes, and she was so great about being quiet for ten minutes. I mean, she was squirming and you know, kind of like shh, she said shh a lot. But uh, it was it was wonderful, and I, I guess like. I think that there's something really lovely about it. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to feel like it's it's going to be the home for me forever. Uh, but for right now, it certainly feels good. Yeah, I'm I'm in I'm in conversation right now with John West, author of a memoir that just came out this past May, Lessons and Carols: A Meditation on Recovery. John, you've been so patient as Jade and I have been talking about all the great things about W O R T that 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 we love, and I I'm just curious to hear what what has your experience been with locally run volunteer organizations, whether it's radio, whether it's local arts programming, whether it's music programming. Yeah, could could you just speak to 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 your experiences with that in, in, in the communities that you've been in? Yeah. I mean, I, I, um, I love, uh, volunteer run organizations. I love community run organizations. And I think that like, even in college, I, I remember I was part of OSCA, the Oberlin student cooperative association. And we was a, you know, it was a student run, you know, volunteer based organization that did, we did meals for everyone. And some people lived in the residence. I, I could ramble about that forever, but, uh, I, I think it's really important. I also want to say that, like, this is this interview is such a gift for me as an author to be able to listen to, to talk to someone who's actually read the book, um, <laughs> and uh, that's so cool. Uh, and, it, and I think it's 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 maybe maybe people in Madison might not know how lucky they are to have that kind of attention uh, in an interview, and um, and that's really cool. I mean, I think it happens in other places, but this is really amazing. And also, like, my, so my partner is a, a radio producer, an audio producer. Um, and uh 
and you know, she um, she's taught me about how amazing it is to have the intimacy of someone in your ears. And I think having that intimacy tethered to a community first, you know, member, uh, you know, volunteer organization is like really special. I think it's it's rare um, to have uh, something like that, um, especially well produced and people care and are passionate. You know, it's just it's just really cool, uh, cool thing that you guys have in Madison. So I hope hope they all realize how lucky they are and call the number and press one extension one. And that number that John just referred to is six zero eight. 256-2001 extension one and uh yeah the wort it, it is a rare thing it's this collective of of people that come together because we believe in community-run programming we believe in having uh, interesting engaged conversations with w- with thinkers and musicians of of all stripes and as we near the two o'clock hour Let's see if Jade has any good news for us. I I have good news because I know that our listeners are currently going to the phones right now to call 608. Pulling them out of their bags uh-huh. right now. 256 yeah. extension 1, or they're going online to wortfm.org. Um, even if you don't make it in the next, you know, two minutes, um, you know, say Madison Book Beats, one of your favorite shows, and that goes a long ways to um, letting... The, the people here who make decisions about where resources go know that um, Madison Book, Book, Book Beat is a show that is worth continuing on the air. Um, I really appreciate what John said about how intimate it is to have someone in your ear. You know, we I think we like to imagine that, you know, we're we're all community members. We're you know, we're coming to you as you know, you're, oh, I hear the phone ring. I hear, I hear it too. Um, <laughs> we're, you know, we're coming to you as your your neighbor who read this book and, and we want to tell you everything about it. And we have a whole hour to tell you about it. Um, I really want to thank John for his time today. And um, yeah, I want to thank the listeners, all uh, Jane who already called and all the callers and, and donors who are um, going to make a, a donation right now. Yeah, so today, folks, we've been in conversation with John West on his new memoir, Lessons and Carols, A Meditation on Recovery, published this past May by William B. Erdman's Publishing Company. John, it's been a pleasure having you on Madison Bookbeat. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, You've been listening to Madison Bookbeat, and I'm your host, Andrew Thomas. Thanks to our uh, receptionists and volunteer phone takers, Amy and Catherine, talk producer and sound engineer, Jade Isiri Ramos, and news director, Sholly Pittman. Coming up next is three hours of jazz with Alex Wilding White. Keep it here on WORT 89.9 FM Madison, listener-sponsored community radio.